Well, as we begin in the main body of John's narrative today, uh, John starts us in a very appropriate place in that he gives us this account of John the Baptist's witness, John the Baptist's ministry. Um, already in the introduction, we've been told by, by John the author, you know, par- partly we're going to have a little trouble here because we've got two men named John that we're dealing with. We have John the Apostle, who's the author of this gospel. Sometimes when, when commentators or scholars are writing about him, they'll just call him the evangelist. So you've got the evangelist on the one hand, and then we've got John the Baptist, or sometimes referred to as the baptizer. Uh, so those are the two Johns that we, we have to kind of balance who we're talking about. But um, in, in this account written by John the Apostle, the evangelist, he, he's already told us about John the Baptist in that he's, he's told us that this man was sent from God, uh, whose name was John, to bear witness about the light. Uh, so John the Baptist's calling was to witness to the person of Jesus Christ. And, and that's where we start in our passage this morning with this initial witness of John the Baptist. Now, it, it could be said from the very beginning here that we call him John the Baptist because of his, his baptizing ministry as it's recorded in the gospel. So, so John pre- preached, he called people to repentance, and, and in that call to return to God, he would direct people to be baptized, which would be a demonstration of their need to be washed clean from their sin before God. So we call him, him John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Uh, but, but as our gospel writer, the apostle, or the evangelist, introduces him to us, we might, we might almost be better off calling him John the Witness um, because of that element that's so prominent in his own ministry. And, and that's what we'll see play out here in our verses this morning. Um, so if you haven't yet, you can turn to, to John 1. We're going to focus particularly on 19 to 28 this morning uh, for our text. And we'll, uh, we'll set the context for our, for our study in this way. Um, many of us would be well acquainted with the, the standing principle that uh, to watch others do something well is a great help to our own practice. Um, as an example of this, I've spoken before my good friend in Seattle. His name is Glenn. Uh, we still talk at least weekly. Uh, the first time I met him, I was 17 years old, and he's had an extremely uh, wonderful influence on my life. I'm very thankful for him. But as far as careers go, uh, Glenn taught middle school for over 40 years before retiring. And in the course of our relationship, I've had the opportunity to watch him teach a number of different things in different settings. In fact, he was extremely influential in my own decision to become a middle school teacher, uh, which I was for a while. And having reached that conclusion that I would do that, uh, I went through that teacher licensure process uh, going to Western Oregon University. So I took the classes and I did my student teaching and I took the licensure exams and and, and all of those necessary things. Um, I learned a lot in that whole process, I suppose, about being a teacher. But I will always maintain that I've learned more about teaching from watching Glenn teach than I've ever learned in the ed program or even in my own experience of, of being in the classroom. Uh, he, he's a master teacher, and his example of how to teach has affected me more than any other aspect of my training experience. Um, which isn't a total surprise because we know that to watch someone do something well, to have a, a really good example to follow, is one of the best ways to learn. Uh, good examples are priceless in terms of their instruction for us. And, and John, who wrote this gospel, John the Apostle, because he's also a good teacher, he would know this. And, and while John's gospel has a very main objective, which is that that through this record, through this account of Jesus' life, we would come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and have life in His name. 
Well, John has that plain objective that he spells out for us in the end of his book. That's not the only objective that's present. Uh, John's final objective is not just to leave us believing in Jesus full stop, but John's more complete objective is to have us believing in Jesus and then engaging in the world around us as a witness to Jesus. And part of the way we know that is very important to John is that in, in his gospel there are seven people or groups of witnesses to Jesus. And we know that seven is that whole and complete number. So that helps us understand that part of John's priority in his writing is setting up as very important uh, witnessing to Jesus as central to what it means to believing in Jesus. We need witnesses if we're going to believe in Jesus. And then as Jesus' followers, we're sent out into the world as witnesses to Jesus. And of course, John's not making this up. He's, he's merely emphasizing narratively what Jesus himself makes plain directly in one of his last interactions with his disciples in John chapter 20. And, and we can remember the scene where, where Jesus enters the room where his disciples are gathered after the resurrection. And Jesus says to them, peace be with you. Then he makes the statement, as the Father sent me, so I send you. So, so just as God the Father sent Jesus into the darkness of the world to shine as the only salvation hope, Jesus now sends his followers out into the dark world to witness to Jesus as our, as our salvation hope. As the Father sent me, so I now send you. So, so John's calling his readers through this gospel record to not only believe in Jesus, but to see our purpose as then to be going out into the world as witnesses for Jesus. And, 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 and what do we need if we're going to do that fruitfully? Well, we need a number of things, uh, but, but first and foremost, maybe not least of all, we need a good example to follow. We need to know what it looks like to be a faithful witness to Jesus as we, as we go out as, as we're called to do. And we have that help in our text today, and that this section of verses uh, gives us a focus on John the Baptist, who is the much-anticipated prophetic witness to Jesus Christ. And as we consider what we're told about John, not only do we gain uh, clarity into the very unique role that John the Baptist does play in the scope of salvation history. He, he obviously plays a unique role. But we also have an extraordinary example in all of this of, of what it means, at least in part, to be a witness to Jesus. And it's an example we can learn from. And we, and we know we need help with this. We need foundational truths about witnessing to Christ that help establish us in this task of living for Christ in the world. Bearing witness to Jesus is no easy thing. There can be uh, those aspects of our witness that distract us. We know how easy it can be from being distracted from the main message of the cross and resurrection of Christ. We uh, need to have help in terms of making sure our own position as witnesses to Jesus isn't distorted by other notions of our own role in the process we may have. Uh, there are those things that can come in and confuse us as, as witnesses to Jesus, not least of all the fact that it is simply difficult to do at times. It's hard to do. And, and because good examples make the best teachers, uh, it is along these lines that we can find good encouragement from John the Baptist in his own ministry as he helps us. And so we actually will think about John's ministry from verse 19 of chapter 1 all the way through verse 42, which is the section Julia read for us, that whole section. We're going to think about John's ministry there over the next two weeks, uh, Lord willing. But this week, we're just going to focus on the first part, uh, which we'll think about under the heading, John the Witness, we'll call him that for now, John the Witness and his own identity. 
That's going to be verses 19 to 28. And then next week, we'll think about John the witness and his effective message. That'll be, that'll be the rest of that section, 29 to 42. Uh, but again today, we're just going to focus on, on 19 to 28, where we think about John the witness and his own identity in this, in this reality of bearing witness to Jesus Christ. So, uh, let's start with verses 19 to 21. And in verses 19 to 21, we have John speaking to his identity as a witness in terms of his position. We'll just think about it with that, with that word as our heading, position. Um, so if you look at verse 19, we see, we see that after the prologue, John our author, John the apostle, is wasting no time in getting into the action of the narrative that's going to unfold before us. So we're dropped right into the situation where John the Baptist is in the midst of his ministry and he's confronted with a delegation from Jerusalem, uh, which, is, which is like the religious home office, spiritually speaking, for Israel. Um, so, so from the religious home office, John is confronted by a delegate of priests and Levites. And we use the word confronted purposefully. Now, part of the reason we know there's immediate tension is because John does refer to them there in verse 19 uh, as, as um, the Jews from Jerusalem. Now, now, John ends up kind of using that term, the Jews, technically, uh, in that while it can be neutral or there's even some positive connotations at times, John uses that word 68 times in his gospel. Almost all of them he uses with reference to opposition to Jesus, to those who are going to oppose the ministry of Jesus. Uh, it's not to be derogatory. John himself, of course, is a Jew. Jesus is a Jew. Uh, but that's one of the ways he's setting apart this group that is going to be opposed oftentimes to who Jesus is. So right away we're confronted by this idea that there's going to be tension uh, because of the label that John uses. And, and then again, it's this delegate of priests and Levites. Um, when we think about this group, really there's, there's two different operations in Jewish religious life that's represented by the priests and the Levites. Uh, the, the priests are the ones who oversaw sacrifices and were basically the more theological ones of the pair, of the, of the group. Um, and, and while all priests were Levites, not all Levites were priests. And that that's actually becomes an important distinction to make if we're going to understand what's really showing up here to confront John. Now, priests had to be descended from Aaron's family line within the tribe of Levi. But Levites, as they're called here, were those who were from that same tribe, from the tribe of Levi historically, but were not descendants from Aaron's family line. You see, so there's a, there's a distinction there between priests and Levites. And as that distinction played out in the religious practices of Judaism, the priests were basically the theologians, and the Levites served as the leaders of, of singing and public worship. That was one job they had. But more important to our situation here, the Levites also served as the security guards of the temple precinct and worship meetings. So, so that helps us understand that, that showing up here to confront John the Baptist, you have a delegation from the religious center of, of Judaism, from Jerusalem. You have this group from the holy city. And this group is the theology buffs and the security team. That's who's showing up. Um, which would make one very nervous, no doubt. However, John seems to not really be concerned at all. In fact, the more he talks to them, the shorter his answers get, right? which, which is just a lesson in and of itself, the fact that John doesn't seem so concerned. He's not buffeted by those who would put pressure on him because he's very clear about his own calling, as, as will become evident here. 
but which of course has enormous implications for us, even if we can speak about this as an aside for a moment, this has implications for us as we think about our own witness to Jesus Christ. Because as we witness to Jesus Christ, some may harass. As we witness to Jesus Christ, some may question in ways that make us feel small. Uh, some may even seek to intimidate us. But we know our task. Right? We know the one to whom our whole life bears witness to. And ultimately, all we care about is the approval of Jesus himself, our own faithfulness to him in the task. So we keep that in our minds when it comes to witnessing. And we see that here with John in, 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 a, in, a, in a certain way, that the heavies show up. And John just has a few brief answers for them. He's busy about the work. He's not, he's not interested in entertaining any of their, any of their pressure. Um, so we're, we, we, we can note that about John. But these, these theologians in the security team, they come, and then they basically come to ask John, who do you think you are? Which is there in verse 19. Who are you? They say. Um, and it's not a surprise that this religious delegation has come, because while John is away from Jerusalem, conducting his ministry out in the, out in the wilderness area, uh, his ministry has had quite a public impact. It wouldn't have gone unnoticed. Uh, in fact, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew tells us this about John's ministry. He says, people from Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to John, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So this is actually a huge movement here going on under John the Baptist's preaching and, and baptizing ministry. People from all over the area are going out to the wilderness to hear John preach and be baptized. Uh, so it's no surprise that this has warranted a visit from the religious home office. Uh, not least of all, because John is baptizing all of these people who are coming, including Jewish people. You know, baptism was a rite within Judaism for those who might have been Gentiles but wanted to be uh, grafted into the Jewish community. They wanted to come in and participate in Judaism. So in that case, Gentiles who were, in the view of, 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 of the religious framework of the day, who were dirty, if they want to come into the Jewish context of worship, they needed to baptize themselves. Actually, they would do it themselves, but they need to be clean. Jews don't need to be baptized. They don't need that at all because after all, their father is Abraham, they're clean. Now you have John out in the wilderness and what he's doing, what is he doing? He's baptizing every, everybody needs to be clean before God. We are all dirty before God, John's saying to them. So, so these guys show up saying, what in the world is going on out here? Who, who do you think you are? Who are you, John? And John answers in a very emphasized way in verse 20 when he describes his position basically by saying exactly who he is not. Who are you? Well, let me tell you who I'm not. And in verse 20, sometimes our translations smooth this out for us. The, the CSB does. I don't think the ESV does, though, if you're looking at that. It, the, the text reads there, he confessed and he did not deny, but confessed. There's like this triple statement there about, about John's emphatic confession here. He confessed, did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. I'm not the Messiah. Messianic expectations are running very hot in Judaism during this time. The word Messiah translates that Hebrew term for anointed one. In Greek, the word translates as Christ, which will show up later on in chapter 1. Uh, but the title speaks to the unique office of the one who would be God's king over his people. It's used historically in the Old Testament even to speak of, of an anointed prophet or an anointed priest. Um, but, but here, John is referencing the Messiah. I am not the Messiah. So he's, he's speaking to the fact that there is this anticipated figure who's going to come, who's going to ultimately fulfill all of these offices, prophet, priest, and king, come from God to rescue his people, rule over his people. And John is saying, I am not this person. I'm not this one. Um, and so the delegation, they have a follow-up question for him, and they ask him if he's Elijah. How about, how about Elijah? Let's try that one. 
which sounds like a very strange question. Are you, are you Elijah? But, but we have to set that question in its scriptural context because at the end of the Old Testament, which is the, the climax of the scriptural revelation that Ju, Judea, uh, Judaism has at this point, right? at the end of, of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi records the Lord's words saying, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So there's this, this prophecy at the closure of the Old Testament scriptures speaking about the fact that Elijah is going to come. Of course, the strange part is that Elijah ministered a long time before the prophet Malachi said this. So how is Elijah going to come? Um, well, we, we do remember in the book of Kings how the prophet Elijah was taken by God to heaven, so he didn't pass through death. And, and, so, and so with this prophecy there at the end of Malachi, many thought that before the day of the Lord, which is a way of speaking about the day of God setting all things right, before that day, Elijah would come and effect repentance. He, he would call people back to the righteous way of God, just as he sought to do during his ministry back in the book of Kings, which we, which we studied a number of years ago. Um, but we've, we've looked at that. So, so these religious leaders, they want to know, are you, are you, John, this Elijah figure? Uh, we know from Matthew 3 that John actually dressed in a very similar way to the way it's recorded that Elijah dressed, kind of a funny way. So is John this guy? John says, no, no, which is an interesting statement because later Jesus actually says yes. Right? John is that figure that Malachi was speaking about. In Matthew chapter 11, you can read that for homework, but Jesus says John the Baptist was that Elijah figure. Of course, John's not Elijah himself, but John's like Elijah in that his ministry was one of, of turning the people's hearts back to the righteous way. Right? So Jesus says that John the Baptist is actually the one Malachi was talking about. In fact, the angel Gabriel, do you remember when he announced uh, the birth of John to uh, John's father, Zechariah? The angel Gabriel actually quotes Malachi to John's dad, saying, your, your kid's going to be that guy. Right? And Jesus later says, John's the guy. Here, John says, I'm not that guy. Why? What's going on here? Why, why would John say that? Well, there are two main possibilities. The first is that John's just not fully aware of the unique role that his life and ministry represent. He might just not fully know. He, he can be the Elijah figure without knowing he's the Elijah figure. That could be it. And we know just from the narrative, John is a humble man. He's not going to think higher of himself than he ought. He might just not really know. Right? Or it could be that John is well aware that in Judaism by this time, a whole lot of, 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 of lore is surrounding this notion that Elijah is going to return. Elijah had almost become a fantasy figure in some circles of Judaism with people thinking Elijah is going to come back at some point. He's going to answer all the questions we have about the Bible. He's going to set all our practices right, make sure all our interpretations of, of Scripture are right. So he'd become this kind of almost religious comic book hero of a figure in, in, in certain sects of Judaism. And so John might just be saying, if you're asking if I match the blown up, almost fairy tale like notions of Elijah coming back, then no, I am definitely not that guy. I'm not that guy. That could be what John means. Whatever the case, whether John just didn't have a full understanding of his own uniqueness or whether he was refusing to be identified with wrong notions of, of what's going on in Malachi, Malachi 4, we don't know. All we know is that John is quick to affirm his position is, is not messianic and it's not Elijah either. And so the leaders ask him one, one, more, one more question. Verse 21, they take another shot. Are you the prophet? That would be a reference to Moses' statement in Deuteronomy 18, 
that one day the Lord would raise up a great prophet uh, who, will, who will speak the Lord's word. Uh, and we actually know that Deuteronomy 18 passage is a reference to Christ himself. Acts chapter 3 makes that clear. Clear, Jesus is the great prophet that Moses was speaking about. But these leaders, they want to know maybe if John the Baptist is that prophet that Moses spoke about. And John, he's getting very blunt with his answers at this point. He just says no. So let's, let's put all this together. This delegation of theologian and security guards comes from Jerusalem. And John positively witnesses, if we can put it that way, in a, in a negative way to his own position as it relates to the Messiah. So, so he, he properly, positively, in a right way, he properly bears witness by saying what he is not to start out with. here. I'm not the one, he says. I'm not the guy. And we take note of this example here. Uh, even as there's no nuance with John's answers, he's just very straightforward, making sure that all possible connections to him as a kind of messianic figure of, of different sorts, all of those are denied. I'm not the guy. John knows his position, and his position is being not Jesus. And when it comes to thinking about what it really means to be a witness to Jesus, this is as good a place to begin as any. We are not the Savior. Right? We are not the long-hoped-for promise reliever for people in our lives. Christians, to some degree, we can, we can inadvertently start to think that the wrong way about this at times. Like, I'm going to be the fixer. I'm going to be the one that proves to be this person's help and hope. And, and, and we may help, no doubt. We're called to do that, obviously. But we have to be careful that we're not the hope. And my, my position as a witness is making sure that I'm consistently affirming I'm not Jesus shared this story with, with some of you, I think, at this point, but it really affected me, so here it is again. Um, at Covenant Seminary, there's a professor who teaches classes for both counselors and those training to be pastors. And he begins every day of class in this way. So he walks in. He's a fairly unassuming man carrying his books and his notes and all of these things, very professor-looking. Walks in, uh, puts everything down on the desk, and he says, Shalom, class. And the class has been trained to respond, Shalom, Jay. Then the next question he asks is, are you the Christ? And the class is trained to respond, I am not the Christ, Jay. And then they get into class. Right. But that's great. And you know why that's great? It's because in a particular way, pastors and counselors might forget that they're not the Christ. Right. So those in unique helping kinds of ministry might start to think that they actually are the one that people need. Right? Shalom, class. Shalom, Jay. Are you the Christ? I'm not the Christ, Jay. What a gift to students who will spend their life involved in the spiritual care of others to remind themselves each day that they're not Jesus. Right? And that's not a reminder that only pastors and counselors need. Right? As witnesses to Jesus Christ, we all need to be prepared to follow John's example here. Are you the Christ? I am not the Christ. As we live the Christian life seeking to promote following Jesus and obeying His way and trusting in Him, we can find ourselves in positions where we actually think we're the ones who possess the hope that people need. We may not confess that outright, but the notion starts to creep into our hearts. We, we can do this as parents, can't we? we? We can develop a complex of thinking, I have the intrinsic moral authority in and of myself, and if my kids are going to be okay, I'm the answer. No, I'm not the Christ as dead. I need the Christ as dead. And so do my kids. And they need to know, I know I need him. I'm not the Christ. Or, or in other relationships, we can start to slide into thinking that our way is the best way, just as we define things. And for people to really be okay, they must yield to what we're asking of them. But we're not the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. We have hope to share. 
But it is not a hope sourced in ourselves. It's a hope sourced in Him. And actually this kind of misunderstanding of our position can show up uh, most of all in our own view of ourselves. We can think that, that we can be our own Savior. I can do what is necessary to make me okay. And so like the psalmist, I almost have to start internal dialogues with my own self. Are you the Christ, Jared? No, Jared, I am not the Christ. Right? If we're going to live lives that witness to Jesus, we have to come to terms with John's confession and make it our own immediate and regular confession as we go through our Christian life. I am not the one where hope is found. Personally, for me, I must not hope in me. I'm not the one where hope is found. Or for my kids, I'm not the one where hope is found. For my friends, for my spouse, I'm a witness to the one in whom hope is found. And I am a desperate co-needer of the one in whom hope is found. But no one needs me for their salvation to be secured. No one needs you for their salvation to be secured. The Lord may use us. Please, Lord, use us. But people don't need me and they don't need you. They need Jesus. And John's aware of his position. He knows what he is not. I'm not the Christ. And, and, and it's good. As we go out into the world as witnesses for Jesus, we're aware of that. We are not the one people need. Pointing to the one, we're not the one. So John makes his position clear. At least he says who he's not. In verses 19 to 21. We have that. And then we'll move into verses 22 and 23. And there John defines his purpose. So in terms of his identity as a witness to Jesus. We move from position now to purpose. Uh, if you're looking at verse 22. We see there at this point the delegation of priests and Levites. They, they uh, have already asked John who are you. All John has done so far is to be very clear about who he's not. And so in verse 22 there's a sense of a little bit of a frustration thing going on, a little exasperation on the part of this group that's come. Uh, so the delegation asked John again, but with a little more emphasis, who are you then? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? It's always bad when the powers that be uh, send you out to get an answer or complete a task and you come back without an answer. You can imagine the delegation reporting back, having turned in their expense reports for a couple nights hotel stay and and a rental car, and then reporting on what they accomplished. What did you find out about John? Well, he just told us what he isn't. That probably wouldn't go very well. They're feeling the pressure of their, of their task. So they get a little more pointed. We need an answer from you, John. We've got to take this back with us. Who are you? And John, in a way, he does tell them. Um, and, and he does so by, by, by going back to a, a biblical passage. You know, we see here they've been trying to pin John down with various Bible passages, maybe Malachi 4, maybe Deuteronomy 18, whether it's Elijah or this prophet figure. And John basically tells them that they're not going to the right place in their Bibles if they want to know what he's all about. Right? And so instead, what he does is he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. And in this, he actually tells them much more about his purpose than his identity. Right? I am a voice. Well, what, kind, what, what kind of identity, identity is that? Who are you? I'm a voice. It's in a sense, almost meaningless, isn't it? It's not, it's not very exciting. It'd be way bigger to say, I'm the prophet, I'm Elijah, I'm something much more exciting. No, I'm a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So Isaiah takes that, or, uh, John takes that passage from Isaiah and applies it to his own ministry and who he is. Now in that passage from Isaiah, the immediate context was one of, of giving hope to people of God who would be exiled in Babylon. It was, it was referencing uh, preparations made for God to come as their rescuer from Babylonian exile. 
um, which geographically and physically would one day take place. But, but because of their disobedience to God, the people of God at the time, they would be forced into this faraway land by their enemies, removed from their place of rest. They'd be exiled under the judgment of God. And, and Isaiah is writing this section that John's quoting. He's writing to them to provide future encouragement to God's people, saying that a time is going to come for the, for the roads that are crooked to be straightened, just as roads would be prepared if a king was going to be traveling through. Uh, so those roads are going to be straightened out uh, as God comes and rescues them and brings them back to the land of promise. Um, but, but with that, the, the, the geographical return from exile, actually, as we keep reading in Isaiah, is not Isaiah's ultimate point. It's not actually what Isaiah's pointing to in the biggest sense because Isaiah goes on to speak in even bigger ways and that Isaiah's word to the people of God carried off into exile actually points, first of all, to a deeper exile than mere Babylon, right? than just getting taken out of the physical land of Israel. Um, as Sinclair Ferguson put it, what Isaiah ultimately goes on to refer to is a darker, further country than Babylon, and that the, the geographical exile, while that might be a problem, spiritual exile is what's really going on in the people's hearts. But what they needed was rescue from the sin and idolatry and rebellion that resided in their hearts and set them at a distance from God's presence. They, they needed one to come and rescue them from the, the darkness of exile that exists because of their own sinful hearts. And so Isaiah goes on in chapters 52 and 53, especially to say that the servant of the Lord, ultimately this Messiah, is, is going to be the one who's going to come and do that. He'll be pierced for our transgressions. Right? The punishment of our iniquities will be on him, and he's actually going to be the one who brings us peace, which, as we read through Isaiah's flow, that, that peace ultimately brings the people of God not just back to Israel, but to the land of eternal rest in a new creation. It's a really glorious thing that Isaiah is picturing there. And John is here saying that the voice that Isaiah was ultimately speaking about the voice that would prepare people to see the servant of the Lord who would come and rescue us from the dark, far country of our sin against God, I'm that voice, John says. That's my purpose. It's a preparation purpose. I'm the voice preparing people to repent and turn and find salvation in God's anointed one, who we'll know is, is Jesus. Right? You see, for all the pressure on John to define himself, um, while, while, he, while he denies any high position, he is very clear in terms of his identity about his purpose. As a witness, I am saying, be ready for the true rescuer from exile. And while John obviously had a unique purpose in his prophetic ministry, uh, in, that, in that it was a direct fulfillment of the Lord's word through Isaiah, uh, that, that, that timed place in redemptive history to, to prepare people for Jesus' public ministry. John and his ministry was clearly totally unique in that way. At the same time, we can take significant note of his example in this. Uh, because here's, here's John the witness, and he's very clear about his purpose. His purpose is to be a voice calling to people in spiritual exile uh, to repent and turn to God and find life ultimately in this one who's going to be present. In, in, in his son. And in a sense, that's a very summative understanding of our call too. the world around us is in exile in that sense. We've been in exile since our sin in Eden. We have been removed from the presence of God, lost because of our sinful hearts. We're far from a place of peace with God as humanity. And we know this and we feel it. In fact, the, the exile element is very felt at times around us. 
whether we can quite put language to it or not. So let me, let me read you this, this poem. It's not the Taylor Swift song. I know there's a Taylor Swift song called Exile. This is not that. This is Oscar Wilde. Way better. He has a, he has a long poem, philosophical poem, published in 1881 called Humanitod. Human, Humanitod. Humanitod. And, and in that poem, Oscar Wilde himself rejects Christianity completely. But he does an amazing job of speaking accurately about, about our human condition. Um, and, and actually, it's a long, long poem. But for example, in that poem, he speaks of humanity as sobbing because of our incompleted melodies. Isn't that quite the way to speak about humanity and our, and our neediness? Sobbing for incompleted melodies. So the things that should be complete and whole in our lives are never resolved and we're sorrowful. Right? That's, that's exile. He, he'll use the word exile here in a moment. He goes on to speak of, of nature. Maybe nature can help us, but it can't help us. Nature, he says, is but a quenched torch. So what seems like it should burn with hope, right? it doesn't actually give us ultimate hope. He speaks of love, but love can't help us. He says, he says love only proves to be noble madness. Right? So love sounds good, but what we mean by love doesn't really bring us rest, which we see very much going on in the world around us today. Wilde goes on to speak of money, saying at best it only fulfills dull appetites. He speaks of the passage of time, as if time could heal all of our wounds. But time, he says, time isn't the answer. Passing time only proves our hands are destructive, he says. And so after he goes on in this poem for some time, he, he reaches a few conclusions, and one of them is this. He says, wanderers, we are, this is us as humanity, we are wanderers in drear exile and dispossessed of what should be our own. We can but feed on wild unrest. That's the position of us as humanity. In our condition as humanity, this is what we do. We feed on wild unrest. That, that's our exile. Right? And it's all around us. We, we seek solace as humanity, but all around us is wild unrest. We are wanderers in drear exile as humanity. And we know this, the, the lostness abounds. We can't maybe put words to it at times, but, but, but this is the condition that we're in. And so John the Baptist's message, we know that it still sounds out in the biggest sense, prepare the way for the Lord. Look to the one who can bring us from death to life. Turn from sin, confess your need to be made clean by God's Son, and find this life that transcends the hopelessness that's all around us. Move from, from wild unrest to a place of peace with Christ who comes and cares for us perfectly, promises hope eternally. This is the call that we still have in our own day. This was the purpose of John's witness. But in a sense, this is the purpose of our witness still as we all feel the reality of exile. And no resolved melodies and, a, and attempts at love and money and nature, they, they all come with emptiness. We need someone to rescue us. So this is our purpose as a witness, saying to those around us, I, I don't possess uh, on my own the hope that you need. Right? That's, that's part of it. I, I know I'm not the one. I'm not, I can't be the one you need. Right? But let me tell you about the one who is, and he's the one who brings us from desecration to rest. He's the one who brings us from no comfort to a place of restored peace with God forever, come what may. Jesus is the one who saves us, uh, to use Sinclair Ferguson's words, from a darker, further country. One of lostness in our sin. Jesus is the one. He bears the price of our failings, taking it to the cross, paying that debt, restoring us to life. So John is witness. He speaks to his position. I'm not the one. And then he's very clear on his purpose. I'm a voice pointing to the one who saves. 
And then, we'll just make this last one very quick, but we have something about John the Baptist's posture. Basically, he's unpacking the fact that he's, he's pointing to the one who saves in this, in this last section from verse 24 and on. So if you just look at that, the delegation asks him, then why is he baptizing? So if, if, if you're not any of these important people, who, why in the world do you think you have the authority to be baptizing? He's already told them he's not the, the great figure they, uh, they, they've, they've named. So what gives him the right to be doing this? And you notice that instead of answering their question, John does what faithful witnesses do. He doesn't get into the details of explaining his position any further. He simply says, I baptize with water, but the one you really need to be thinking about is the one uh, who will come after me. In fact, I'm not even worthy to unstrap his sandals. In, in the framework of the day, uh, a disciple of a teacher would be required to do many things for the teacher just because it wasn't a, a paid situation. So you would do many things to help your teacher with, with their life. Um, but there's a list of things that are too low for disciples to do. One of the things that's too low for a disciple to do for a teacher is unstrap the dusty sandals of their, of their feet. You don't have to do that. Right? John says, I'm not even worthy to do the lowest thing that's prohibited when it comes to this one. Right? He's, he, and, and then he goes on to say, in effect, if you want to talk about my, you want to talk about my baptism, but I actually don't want to talk about that. He says, I want to talk about the one you're missing, someone who stands among you, he says in verse 26, but you don't know him, John says. He's here, Jesus is here, but you're missing him. He's the one you should be interested in. John's not interested in any, in any level of self-promotion, something that's going to become very clear in the next section. No self-promotion for John and no distraction from the main thing for John. He's not convinced he needs to give a theological rationale from Ezekiel or something like that for the fact that he's baptizing with water. He, he doesn't get into any of that whatsoever with these people. He says, I'm a voice and I'm pointing to the one who is really worthy. And he's not distracted from that message. His posture is clear in that. And that's helpful for us because when we're trying to speak about Jesus to others, we can notice how quickly peripheral stuff can get central. Let's talk about your baptism, John. No, actually, let's talk about this figure that you're missing. He's the one that matters. Peripheral stuff sneaks in so easily. My views on this sneak into a gospel conversation. Your views on that, this article or that media report, and, and this thing from my past or that past, your past history with the church, the, the policy concerns or the political agenda. John, John the Baptist, as the exemplary witness to Jesus, he's not sidetracked by distraction, not sidetracked in self-justification for his ministry. He's not taking the time with that. He's saying, actually, let's just get back to Jesus. He's here and you're missing him. And that's what we're called to do in our conversations. We can say things. I'm really interested in all that you and all that you'd like to tell me about your history. I'm happy to talk to you about my own views, too, at some point. But if we really want to talk true spirituality, if you want something to, to take back to Jerusalem, as it were, like, can we just spend some time talking more directly about the person and work of Christ? Who he is, what he's done, because really, for all else, we might say, I, I, I just don't want you to miss him. That's our posture as witnesses. He's the great one. He's the one with the hope. He's the one we need. And he's the one who's come. And he's the worthy one. And so uh, we, we're oriented by this passage here from John. His position, you know, he says who he's not. His purpose, he, he, he points uh, to the one who ultimately comes to give rest, relief from exile. And his posture is one that's oriented toward Christ continually, not toward those peripheral things that can so easily distract. And in that is, is, some, is some witness 101 truth for us as we seek to live our lives uh, for the gospel. And with all of that, we have that central reminder 
of who Jesus is and who we are not. And that maybe is what we, what we want to always be mindful of most of all. Shalom class. Shalom Jay. Are you the Christ? I'm not the Christ. So then what are we doing? Well, we're learning to point to know we're learning to know him more so that we can point others to him and they can find the life that they need. We're thankful to God for his word. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we do ask that you'd renew our hearts in this truth and that we would be uh, more and more conformed to uh, the witness reality that you've called us to be. We know out in the world it can be difficult, there can be distractions, Lord, but we want to be voices out in the world for Jesus. And not pointing to ourselves, not interested in what can be distracting, but ultimately pointing forward uh, to, the, to the significance of Jesus, the fact that he's come, the fact he'll come again, and he's the rescuer of all who turn to him in faith. Uh, we pray that you would help us uh, have this truth go down deep and affect our own lives in a way that glorifies Christ. In his name, amen.